Good morning, everyone, and welcome to Medical Grand Rounds. We are so delighted to have our colleagues from West Health here today. There are no conflicts of interest to declare associated with today's presentation. I'm going to briefly introduce you to Dr. Ellen Flaherty. She will do the introductions of our guest speakers today. Dr. Flaherty is the director of our Centers for Aging and Health at Dartmouth, and she's the past president of the American Geriatrics Society. Dr. Flaherty is the principal investigator of a HRSA grant on Geriatric Workforce Enhancement Program, recently renewed for another five years, and for an Administration for Community Living Falls Prevention Grant. Ellen is also a co-principal investigator of the American Geriatric Society National Geriatric Workforce Enhancement Coordinating Center. In her national role, Dr. Flaherty has supported the work of West Health in improving the acute care of older adults and is honored to have the West Health leadership here today for our medical grand rounds. Ellen Flaherty is an assistant professor in geriatrics in general internal medicine in our Department of Medicine. Come tell us about today's speakers. Thank you. Thank you, Rich. And I am, as Rich said, honored to have my colleagues and friends here from West Health. And I apologize in advance for the short, very short, uh, shortened bios for your illustrious work that you've done. Uh, first, I'll introduce uh, Shelly Lyford. Uh, Shelly Lyford is the president and chief executive officer of West Health, the Gary and Mary West Foundation, and the West Health Institute. Shelley played a critical role in helping to establish the foundation that is solely funded by philanthropists Gary and Mary West. In 2019, Shelley was appointed for a three-year term as a commissioner on the California Commission on Aging. And just yesterday, it was announced that Shelley has been appointed by California Governor Newsom to serve on the Master Plan for Aging Stakeholder Advisory Committee. Shelley holds a master's degree in international relations and political economy from the University of San Diego, and we're absolutely thrilled you're here. I'm also going to announce uh, to introduce Tim and Kevin. So um, Tim Lash is the Chief Strategy Officer an executive vice president of West Health and the president of West Health Policy Center. Tim oversees the development and execution of West Health's successful aging portfolio across its nonprofit applied medical research, policy, and advocacy initiative and outcomes based philanthropy. Tim holds an MBA from my alma mater, NYU, Stern School of Business with a concentration in finance and marketing. And last but not least, Dr. Kevin Bice. Dr. Bice serves as an associate professor of emergency medicine and internal medicine, vice chair of academic affairs, and co-director of the Division of Geriatrics Emergency Medicine at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill School of Medicine, as well as a consultant with West Health. Dr. Weiss chairs the first board of governors, the American College of Emergency Physicians, 
Geriatric Emergency Department Accreditation Program. And with that said, I'd like to introduce Shelly. Clarity, thank you so much for the lovely introduction. I'd also like to thank Dr. Conroy for hosting a lovely dinner for West Health last night. And of course, thank, thanks to uh, Dr. Rothstein for uh, the, the Grand Rounds series. It is a pleasure to be here today for a myriad of reasons. Um, of course, I am very proud to call California home. I've lived there for 19 years, but I am a born and bred New Englander. And so it is always Always good to come home, and it is very good to see my sister in the audience, Brooksanne Chapin, who uh, surprised me this morning, who came down. She is the Director of Nursing at Meneg, has many awards for her excellence at Meneg, and um, is really an inspiration when it comes to geriatric care. So thank you, Brooksanne. Breast health is dedicated to successful aging, and we're also dedicated to lowering the cost of health care to assure that seniors in our nation can successfully age. As I mentioned, I am a born and bred New Englander, and that is another reason why I'm especially happy to be here today at Dartmouth-Hitchcock. I grew up on a dairy farm called the Cold Springs Farm, about 30 minutes from here in Chelsea, Vermont. <laughs> Chelsea is a picturesque small town with just over a thousand people. The hills that dot the valley are populated with small family farms. And Chelsea is idyllic because it's the home to two commons, the North Common and the South Common. One is flanked by our public school and county courthouse, while the other is surrounded by our town hall and local church. But like so many New England communities, Chelsea has no hospital. If a senior falls, or needs any sort of acute care or emergency care, he or she is going to have to take an ambulance ride to either Gifford and Randolph Center or here to Dartmouth-Hitchcock. And if they are lucky, they will receive care from an emergency medicine physician of the likes of Dr. Scott Rohde, who has been a longtime friend of my family, a pillar in both the Dartmouth and Gifford communities, and who West Health is very excited to work on a very important initiative that we'll discuss here today. We all know that rural populations are underserved medically and socially, and that is especially true for rural seniors. They are not only more likely than younger adults to be managing multiple chronic conditions, but they're often less mobile and are often much more isolated and food insecure. And that is why West Health is so excited about our upcoming collaboration with Dartmouth-Hitchcock. Our goals are twofold. First, to help establish a level one accredited geriatric emergency department here. And second, to create a hub and spoke network to export your geriatric ED expertise and resources with telehealth to rural EDs and clinics that dot Maine, New Hampshire, and Vermont, the tri-state area. For me, this is the perfect union, combining West Health's experience, leading the way to adopt wider geriatric appropriate care around the nation with Dartmouth-Hitchcock's pioneering work in telehealth and geriatrics. 
We have been incredibly impressed by the connected care network you have built through your Center for Telehealth, including your teleemergency and teleurgent care units. West Health's multi-million dollar grant, which we plan to announce publicly this fall, will enable Dartmouth-Hitchcock to add geriatric emergency telecare to its already world-class telehealth portfolio. And what is best of all is that the seniors in the three grayest states in the United States are going to be the beneficiaries of this terrific work. This kind of partnership truly exemplifies West Health's approach to outcomes-based philanthropy. First, we stand up a center of excellence for geriatric care. Then we study the outcomes to assess best practices and disseminate learnings. And then finally, we spread the model to other communities in partnership with leading, forward-thinking medical organizations like Dartmouth-Hitchcock. 130 years ago, Dr. William Stuart Halstead revolutionized medical education at Johns Hopkins with a simple dictum, see one, do one, teach one. And West Health has embraced Dr. Halstead's directive when it comes to innovating and disseminating geriatric healthcare delivery. So please allow me to give you a little context and history of West Health, which, as Ellen stated, is solely funded by Midwesterners Gary and Mary West. This is West Health. It includes three organizations united by a single mission. We have an outcomes-based philanthropic unit, the West Foundation in Solana Beach, an Applied Medical Research Institute in La Jolla, California, and a policy center in Washington, uh, D.C. And although we are located on K Street, we are not the typical, typical lobbying firm. In fact, this group represents an important three-stool approach to three-leg approach to solving some of the nation's greatest problems. We're able to kickstart innovative models of care at the foundation. We're able to validate those through applied medical research with great institutions like Dartmouth Hitchcock, and then we're able to package up all of the data, the evidence, take it to Washington, D.C., and under Tim Lash's leadership, we endeavor to enlighten policy for better outcomes, for more, more sustainable payment mechanisms. We're focused on seniors and seniors alone. It's interesting to know and to note that there are 105,000 private foundations in the United States. 105,000. Of those 105,000 foundations, six are solely dedicated to aging. <coughs> that is less than one one thousandth of a percent of philanthropy dedicated to the fastest growing demographic in our nation. So let's talk about that fastest growing demographic. Here are the facts, and I know many of you are familiar with these. Every eight seconds, someone in our country turns 65. Every day in my state of California, 1,000 people turn 60. Two in five seniors in our country are living at or below the poverty level. By 2030, all baby boomers will be older than the age of 65, making up about 20% of our overall population. 
This is the first time in our history that older people are projected to outnumber children. Simply put, we must improve how our healthcare system cares for this important age group. This age group that represents our grandparents, our parents, and all of us. So through a combination of research, policy, advocacy, and philanthropy, West Health is collaborating on a range of mission-aligned initiatives, senior-focused acute care, senior-focused care for chronic conditions, and senior-focused care for supportive services. Those are all of the applied areas where we focus on geriatric emergency care, community-based palliative care, home-based primary care, oral health care, as well as care coordination and nutrition. Our macro level themes, which Tim is going to talk about in a moment, really focus on the importance of lowering healthcare costs. As I said earlier, we do focus on developing new models of healthcare. Three examples include the Gary and Mary West Senior Dental Center, Gary and Mary West Program for the All-Inclusive Care for the Elderly, PACE, and the Gary and Mary West Senior Emergency Center Care Unit at the University of San Diego, at University of California, San Diego. Our Senior Dental Center came to us based on nutrition. We run a senior wellness center that serves 900 seniors a day. 900 seniors a day go to our center in downtown San Diego because they are food insecure. We realized if we could capture everyone in one area, we can break down the transportation barrier, and we invited about 25 nonprofit organizations to come together and provide services seamlessly to these seniors who are there actively from 7 in the morning until 3 in the afternoon with a singular focus on nutrition. Using nutrition as a draw, we're able to care for seniors in a much more holistic way. We are the very first senior center in the United States to include a dental center. At that dental center, we have less than a 5% no-show rate. Unheard of. In private practice, the no-show rate is anywhere from 30 to 50% breaking down a transportation barrier, and adding services and case management has really shown us the importance of solving problems in a very practical way. We're very proud to launch our very first PACE program in northern San Diego County. This PACE program will be the first in the nation to also include a dental center. And of course, we're here today to talk about emergency medicine. West Health's $40 million nationwide commitment to GEDs began in San Diego, where we studied the unmet acute care needs of geriatric patients, who, by the way, account for more than 20% of department admissions. We soon recognized that the emergency department settings offers a very unique opportunity to address specific health care needs of seniors we will be able to provide better care and reduce unnecessary costs and also provide many social services at the same time. West Health invested $12 million with UC San Diego Health to build the Gary and Mary Ross Senior Emergency Care Unit 
and La Jolla, which is the very first level one accredited GED west of the Mississippi. UC San Diego opened the state-of-the-art facility earlier this year with architectural and care features designed to improve both medical and social outcomes for older patients. West Health has also joined forces with the American College of Emergency Physicians on an initiative to accredit GEDs nationwide. Later in this presentation, co-creator and director, Dr. Kevin Bice, will share more about this flagship facility and the ASAP program, which has accredited more than 85 hospital GEDs across the country in just this year alone. So behind our GED efforts is our unwavering commitment to lowering healthcare costs. And to tell you more about that, I'm going to hand this presentation off to my colleague, Tim Lash. But first, I'd like to highlight one fun fact that connects Dartmouth to UC San Diego to West Health. <laughs> now, I'm sure that all of you are very familiar with this character who is sculpted in ice at your annual winter carnival. The cat in the hat's creator is, of course, the namesake of Dartmouth's Geisel School of Medicine. The honorary Dr. Seuss, Theodore Geisel, was not only a distinguished Dartmouth alum and benefactor, but he was also a longtime resident of La Jolla, where our institute is headquartered, and he is also a benefactor of UC San Diego where our emergency department is located. My office is across the street from UC San Diego. And at camp, on the campus, you can go ahead and you can view this statue of the good doctor and his cat. Of course, in San Diego, we tried to make it out of ice. That was a problem. So we just decided to go for it and put it in bronze. But as we embark upon this exciting new partnership together, and as we tackle the daunting challenges of providing quality, low-cost, appropriate health care to rural seniors, I would like to invoke the can-do spirit of Dr. Seuss. Dartmouth and West Health have a lot of places to go together in service of our nation's seniors, and we are thrilled to start this journey with you today. Thank you. Can everybody hear me? One is lowering the cost of health care, and the other uh, is really focused on successful aging and ensuring uh, that seniors have access to the high-quality, affordable health care uh, that they need. Uh, and I'm really excited that Kevin's going to talk about the work we're doing around geriatric emergency departments because it really exemplifies how philanthropy and clinical practice and applied medical research and policy can really converge uh, to you know, shape not only the experiences for seniors, uh, but really shape the, the care that you all uh, you know, deploy uh, every single day. I thought before we get into that, uh, it would be helpful for me to put my policy hat on for a second. I don't want to bring DC's swamp uh, to, to Dartmouth, uh, but it is useful, I think, um, to spend a little bit of time pausing on how do we think about and how do stakeholders, uh, both at the state level and the federal level, 
think about models like geriatric appropriate uh, emergency departments or PACE programs or oral health care programs? How do we think about them in the context of one, the broader macro environment of what's happening uh, within, with healthcare, specifically focused on the spending, and then two, how they think about them in the context of what is actionable policy. Uh, and you know, it's really important to do that because at the end of the day, you can deploy $40 million, you can deploy $100 million, you can deploy $500 million you know, around a program. And if there aren't tailwinds from a policy standpoint and there aren't incentives at a system level, you know, ultimately, uh, you know, they, they fail to fulfill their potential, uh, not only for patients, but for uh, the system itself. It's a lot like, uh, I have young kids, I don't know if anybody's ever been bumper bowling, right? But, you know, the nice thing about bumper bowling is you roll the ball down and it, you know, it stays in the lane, it optimizes its path with the bumpers. And healthcare is a lot like that. Policy is the bumpers and health systems optimize within that context to, um, you know, to, to deliver care, uh, but also to maintain uh, their, their financial viability. So you have to think about the policy environment. It's really impossible not to. So at a high level, uh, this is a tool, it's a dashboard. You can go to west, uh, the healthcostcrisis.org. It's a tool that we use to evaluate the impact of uh, various policies and various models on the trajectory of, of healthcare spend. And actually, if, you, if you're on the website, it goes back all the way into the 90s and then fast forward uh, to 2040, looking at what we generally think about at the top here in terms of uh, healthcare expenditure. So in the center, what's the total NHE, the national healthcare expenditure, and then branching out to look at what do the public funds uh, focus on and then what is the ultimate uh, spend from a private uh, perspective. And here, you know, the, the numbers are in fact you know, overwhelming. Today we spend about $3.8 trillion on healthcare annually. If you fast forward on the trajectory that we're on, that will be uh, over $7 trillion uh, by, by 2040. It's, it's, it really isn't uh, sustainable. But what's interesting is when, when, you're, when you're in Washington, you're talking about, uh, about healthcare policy, it, it very quickly moves from a discussion of the overall trajectory of spend uh, to the broader context of what trade-offs are we making, right? And what impact is that having on, you know, other areas of, uh, of other areas of the economy? So on the left here, uh, you know, a, a very useful area to look at is so like what is happening with income growth versus the, the total cost of healthcare? And here, uh, there's a striking asymmetry. There's a lot of focus more recently highlighted in the center here on, on prescription drugs. We know that you know, innovation is important, particularly innovation and discovery around drugs. They impact outcomes. But all too often, uh, patients just don't have access to them because they can't afford them. Uh, and again, spends, you know, out, and, and the costs there outstrip you know, any increase that we've seen on the total health care on the right here, you know, comparators of, you know, let's look at a new car versus the cost of hospitalization for the first time. And those, you know, they've, uh, you know, they've uh, bisected each other, uh, and, uh, and and now, you know, the, the cost of the hospitalization is you know, clearly on a trajectory that outpaces even common things that we've seen. And then the impact on uh, on, on employers, and I'll I'll come back to that in a, in a few slides. Because for, for decades, I think, um, you know, employers have looked at, you know, health care and benefits as, you know, sort of uh, a ticket to the game, right? That, you know, to attract good talent, uh, you, you have to provide these benefits. And now for the first time through work that we do with the Pacific Business Group on Health and the Business Roundtable, that's starting to change. And in many ways, they're, they're putting their hands up and saying, we just can't continue 
uh, continue to do this. But I'll highlight the, the, the one, the second to the right. Um, and this, you know, as of recently, has been a major area of focus, education and healthcare, as we enter into discussions and dialogue with policymakers. So in 2010, uh, there were 12 states that spent more on their state health care programs than they did on their elementary education. And you fast forward uh, just 18 years, um, uh, sorry, that's 2000, and, and you fast forward 18 years to where we are now today, there are now 44 states that spend more on their state health care program uh, than they do on education. And, and that should be startling, uh, you know, for a number of reasons. But I think principle of which is if you look at the top 5% uh, of the population um, as, you know, for, for education, if you look at the bottom 5%, there's a 10-year difference in life expectancy. That's not in Uganda or you know, you know, other countries. It's right here uh, in the United States. And that is, uh, that, that's pretty troubling and something that has to be, uh, has to be addressed. So when we think about policy um, at, at, at West Health, uh, we think about uh, the, in sort of three big buckets, the economic drivers, payment drivers, the system itself. And I'll go through, uh, go through each one of these. Uh, but before I do, what I want to sh share is that there, we should be optimistic, right? There's numbers in terms of the trajectory, and we're spending more on education versus this. Versus, I mean, we've been talking about this for decades, right? This is nothing new uh, that I'm sharing. And, but the question is, has something changed? And I think it has. And, I, and I'll, I'll, you know, I'll share a few examples. In California, there was some legislation a few years back that would have allowed the state uh, program to leverage VA pricing for drugs. Okay, seems like a good thing because the VA negotiates drug pricing, and you know they, they have good access. And the state was paying more, and they said, "Hey, maybe we can use that as a reference price." Pharma, the lobbying group, spent 125 million dollars in one quarter to ensure that that legislation failed at the ballot, right? $125 million. It's a really powerful group. And when we, you know, when we look at more broadly the, the, the hospital lobby, the medical device lobby, I mean, there's lots of lobbies, right? They've been effective for decades at you know, ma maintaining the status quo, which is uh, really quite profitable for many. Um, but you know, there's uh, you know, there's there's millions of people that are borrowing money, skipping treatment, you know, making trade-offs between household expenses that they really shouldn't have to make. But I think something's changed, right? I mean, we we we, we saw it at the midterm election, right? Healthcare was the number one issue um, that was uh, reported by voters coming out of the ballot box, and that's that's important, right? Um, but you still have this powerful pharma lobby. Well, if you just look a few weeks ago, uh, Senator Grassley in the Senate put forward legislation that would impose a cap, right? A cap on the growth of brand name pharmaceutical prices, right? In terms of how they grow. Uh, it's technical, but it basically fixes it to in, in inflation. And that cap over 10 years would have cut no, conservatively $60 billion of revenue, right? Uh, out of the, the pharmaceutical sector. Now, historically, you know, the Republicans, not to make this partisan, but the Republicans, right, have been quite nice to pharma. And this is a Republican-controlled Senate. And we're now seeing legislation moving forward, despite the pharma lobby, that is quite threatening to pharma. That would suggest that, that something is changing. We're doing a lot of work uh, around that, but also uh, with the House around Medicare negotiating drug prices. And, 
not to sort of you know break confidentiality, but you will see, and nothing I'm about to say is, is confidential, but you will see uh, Nancy Pelosi introduce legislation uh, just in a few weeks that will include mechanisms for the government to negotiate drug prices. And with some of the work that we've seen so far, it could go as far as if the pharmaceutical companies do not negotiate successfully with the, with the, with the government, that they will impose taxes, not on the price of the drug that they were supposed to negotiate, but on the overall revenue of that company. Unheard of. I can't imagine anything like that will go through. But this is where people's mindset is, because it is such a crisis. And then finally, you see the head of the Pharma Trade Association, which is responsible uh, for um, selecting, in many cases, the lobbyists, dismissed because there's frustration that they're not being successful, that they're no longer able to maintain the status quo. So I think things are changing, and that's, uh, that's absolutely a positive thing. But where are they likely to change around? right? Uh, and I realize I'm going to start here in consolidation. I realize there might be some folks in this room uh, that, that are responsible for consolidating practices. But, but we see this, right? We see both vertical and horizontal consolidation across the healthcare system. It's occurring across the country. And what we know is where that happens, prices go up and the outcomes are worse. In a study recently reported by Martin Gaynor, for every 10%, so I'll make it optimistic, 10% decrease in, in um, hospital consolidation levels, you see a 3% decrease in 30-day mortality associated with MI. So that's a positive thing. So that would suggest, well, maybe consolidation is an antidote, right? But not necessarily, because there is an antidote. Where we see consolidation in the context of value-based care and risk-based agreements, and particularly consolidation where there's provider-payer combinations, you don't see that adverse event, and you don't see the increase uh, in, in overall uh, hospital costs and expenditures, the premiums that are able to be demanded of the, of the employers. And this, I would say, just over the past you know, six months has become a major area of focus for the Senate Health Committee and other uh, policymakers uh, in, in D.C. The next area that there's been a lot of focus on, and we'll talk about an example of this, that we saw this in a second, is the, is the market failures. I'm sure there are just about everyone in this room probably every day uh, you know, looks at a list of what's on shortage. What, what don't we have access to? And it can be you know, simple things like saline or Benadryl or like needed drugs for uh, anesthesia. A lot of them are around generic uh, injectables. These have been around forever. So why are they of uh, short supply? And the reality is that, yes, as you know, generics come on board, you have four or five competitors. But over time, it reduces itself to one or two and you start to see predatory market behavior. And that, you know, ultimately, there's, you know, it, it, it is complex, but there, that is the primary reason that we see shortages uh, in hospitals. They have all the leverage, and, the, and you know, the, the system that's buying it uh, simply uh, does not. You see that if you look from 2011 to 2018, uh, you know, this would say, yes, there's been a lot of access shortages, and, and that looks constant, you know, fairly, you know, it's not getting worse. But if you go under the data, the intensity and the duration of these shortages and the impact from a public health perspective uh, is, is growing significantly. And in fact, uh, the latest shortage of norepinephrine uh, is estimated to cost uh, the country over $13 billion uh, in total. Uh, increased healthcare costs associated with that. I mean, it's something that we shouldn't have to tolerate. I, I sit on um, the Drug Selection Committee for a nonprofit that we're going to talk about in, in one second here, which is which is here. And uh, I was I was talking to the chief pharmacist of the Mayo Clinic. They have four people that hit refresh, refresh, refresh uh, within their pharmacy department 
just looking for the availability of, uh, of drugs. These are you know, trained people, right? I mean, the, these uh, salaries we're spending to hit refresh. It really doesn't make any sense. So how do you address these types of market failures, right? Uh, particularly when there's collusion. And anybody that's watched the news lately knows that like, you know, there's now like, text strings and, and phone calls saying, like, maybe they're colluding. Uh, I don't think it's maybe. Perhaps they are. Um, you address them really from an economic standpoint of either having a market-based disruption, right? or you, you have policies that are around it. We've talked about some of the policies, but I think what really is exciting, and, and it's not just for hospitals, but even from a political standpoint, to get tailwinds on the right, the left, and the center, uh, is more market-based solutions. And the Gary and Mary West Foundation recently partnered with the Arnold Foundation and the Peterson Center on Healthcare and other philanthropy, uh, and seven initially health systems, to stand up a generic, non-for-profit, Pharmaceutical company, and the, the past, the last two things there, nonprofit and pharmaceutical company. Like, when do you say that, right? Um, so, like that, the, the name itself suggests that it's disruptive, but it, it essentially leverages the buying power of its members, right? And if you look at the bottom here, there's now over 900 hospitals, which account for about 30 percent of the hospital beds uh, in the country that are part of this. And the way the agreements work makes it a powerful model that you can go to the manufacturing space and say, hey, we'll guarantee this supply, but we need to secure uh, reliable supply and the lowest sustainable price, right? So you have these folks that, you know, the status quo has been good, but now the hospitals are coming together, many of whom historically have competed with one another, right? And they're working together to leverage their purchasing power on behalf of the patients, which is incredibly powerful. And Shelley Leifert is the vice chair of the board uh, of, uh, of, of Civica, which I think is a testament to what the, the organization from the very beginning wants to accomplish, which is something that, you know, the, maintaining the North Star, making sure that this always, you know, is a nonprofit that's serving the benefit of patients. And that's something that, that philanthropies like the Gary Mary West Foundation have a tremendous amount of experience doing. This is going to make a real difference uh, and not, not just not just for patients, but on you know on, on how we practice and, and, and think about the deployment of, uh, of of resources. The next area I want to go to is is, is payment, and here I'm I'm, I'm really am optimistic. We did a, a study in, in California, and this goes back to the comment that I made earlier about sort of where employers are at in terms of how much they can sustain. There's incredible variation, but particularly there's incredible asymmetries in terms of what some healthcare systems versus others that would be similar in just about every metric are able to command in terms of payment premiums as compared to the cost, right? So in California, it's very interesting. The hospitals have to report their cost basis you know, across service lines and their payment by payer type so you can actually look at. So what did it cost you to provide these services and what were you actually paid? Um, and then you can look at what Medicare pays, right? So for the, for the hospitals in California that are sort of at the top 10%, their average private payment, so this is on average, these are the private, uh, private self-insured employers for the most part, right, which account for the majority of healthcare payment. It's two and a half times the hospital cost and three and a half times uh, what, what Medicare is paying. And, you, you know, often it's said, well, you know, perhaps Medicare pays, uh, pays too little. Um, the way that our healthcare system has evolved, you know, the higher prices and higher, higher costs have been used to justify, you know, sort of higher prices. It's this vicious cycle that we're in. Surprisingly, when you look at the California data, there are hospitals that are able to maintain, you know, sort of operations very effectively and very positive outcomes with private payments at or near or just above the Medicare payment level. So it can be done, but it has to do with you know, how, we, uh, 
you know, you know, how the resources are deployed. On the right here, um, you know, fee-for-service medicine you know, really you know, has generated, I think, a lot of misalignment right, in terms of what the incentives are within the system. Uh, we're seeing progress, and here is where I'm really optimistic, because we're now, I think, reaching a, a tipping point. Uh, across the country, we're at about 25%. Uh, there are some systems that are much higher than that, and in the work that we've done, uh, with learning action networks and around you know, geriatric emergency medicine and others, when you're within a system where you push you know, north of 30 or 40 percent of the uh, of the patients in some type of risk-based or value-based agreement, that's when you can start really making the investments that are necessary uh, to um, you know to sustain themselves. Uh, Shelley and Kevin and I are with uh, with Deputy Secretary Hargan uh, from HHS um, just um, last week. And you know, this, this is a major area of focus you know, through issues like primary care first, and there, there's some policies around uh, ET3, which is, which is a demonstration project. But how can we get the, the, the penetration of value-based agreements uh, higher? Because if it's not at 30 or 40%, then the, you know, you're essentially, the feedback from the health systems are, well, we're making these investments, but we're cutting, you know, we're, you know, it's, we're cutting our feet off ourselves, right? Because it's, it's, it's impacting our own sustainability. And uh, you know, the, the, the way to get there is to move the rules of the game, right? The bumpers, analogy, bumper bowling. If you, if you move the bumpers, uh, you can incentivize different behavior. And then finally, I just want to conclude with you know two other areas that are, you know are focused for us and, and very sort of active from a policy perspective. You know, transparency. I'll make you know be very brief here. Often when we talk about transparency, we talk about you know the patient knows what it costs. And you know, yes, patient-facing transparency is important. Over you know the next ten years, it could save eighteen billion dollars. But it, it's 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 far inferior in terms of its potency of impact than other transparency, which would target the physicians. Do you all know? Do the clinicians know? Uh, what it costs, uh, you know, the pen is very expensive, uh, and you, you need to you need to know, you know, what that impact would be, uh, you know, for the patient, because often, you know, it you know it, it, it could mean trade offs that you're not even aware of that they may be making, right? In terms of, you know, am I paying my rent? Am I able to have the food that I need? Am I going into bankruptcy? Medical related bankruptcy is a real problem in the U.S. And then finally, the spending on social services. So you all know these statistics. You know, when when you look at um, what we spend on healthcare what versus what we spend on social services, you know, it's, it's flip-flop versus uh, other OEDC countries. I was recently at a meeting, uh, Don Berwick from the IHI, um, you know, previously, you know, with, with uh, the, the administration, um, and I were speaking at the same conference, and we were talking ahead of time, and I learned something uh, that, that I didn't know. And we, we were talking about um, you know, sort of health outcomes you know, from medical care versus health outcomes from, um, from social services. And he shared with me that the, the most um, sort of well, the, the largest study right, on statins, uh, according to the British Journal of Medicine, suggests that for every uh, one year you take a statin, you get 20 days increase uh, in, in, in life expectancy, right? Um, that's that's really that's really sorry for every one year it's two days right for every for over ten years it's a twenty day increase uh, in in life expectancy and you know that, that doesn't that doesn't seem like a lot and then he said you know but if you take the D train uh, from 85th Street to 186th Street uh, 165th Street in uh, in Manhattan you lose six years of life expectancy every six seconds. <laughs> Right? I mean, I, I mean that's, that's really, that's really, you know, startling, right? So the, the, the power of whatever this is that's killing us, right? 
that's non-medical, right, far exceeds what we're able to do with over $3.8 trillion of healthcare spend. And, you know, the only way that we're going to get at that is either, you know, raise taxes, which, you know, I don't think anybody wants, or redistribute where the dollars are spent, right? And that's why we're focused on the redistribution and how do you inform policy to be able to accomplish that uh, because it's absolutely critical. So, you know, we're uh, at, at West from a policy perspective to make the programs that we're talking about, that Kevin's about to sort of get into, around uh, geriatric emergency department and case program, to make them sustainable. Uh, you know, one, we're focused on prescription drugs. Why? why? Because they, they, they matter, they're too expensive, and because they're actionable right now. I mean, that really is an area that, uh, that we're likely to... Uh, to move the needle on, and it's important uh, because you know a, a little stat that as, as I was looking every year there's 125,000 deaths uh, due to non-adherence. We recently did a study with the Gallup organization looking at this, and others have looked at this. Two thirds of non-adherence is often reported due due to cost, right? So now we're talking about 80 plus thousand people dying every single year because they simply can't afford their medications. To put that in perspective, during the 19 and a half years of the Vietnam War, there were 59,000 uh, U.S. soldiers that were killed in action. Over 19 and a half years, right? 80,000 a year because they can't afford their medications. I mean, they're, they're startling comparisons. Uh, the, the other areas that we're focused on, the value-based models, and, and really that is absolutely critical. It comes back to the numbers, right? If we, if we look at you know, what, what, what drives, what's the antidote to the, the adverse outcomes of consolidation? How do you, can you leverage the scale of consolidation but get the, sort of the savings that are associated with the patient outcome? Value-based contracts, particularly in the context of payer-provider combinations, are really, really powerful. And then transparency. It's not the silver bullet. It sure is not. Uh, you can have a very transparent system that is fabulously expensive. Um, but we view it as a necessary condition. If we have more transparency in the marketplace, if patients know, but more importantly, the employers know and the providers know, uh, you know what is being spent and where, uh, we can make more informed, uh, more informed decisions. I'm going to turn it over to, Ke uh, to Kevin now to talk about geriatric emergency departments. Um, I really do think it exemplifies, as I said at the beginning, how these various levers uh, come together. And on the, the D-Train example, I think it is something that you all can do right now to start to you know, sort of leverage some of the, the pathways, the models, the resources to link to the community, to link to those social services, uh, to impact uh, sort of that, that uh, asymmetry, right, and the impact of uh, what, what the social services drive in terms of life expectancy and you know, what we're able to do or not do with $3.8 trillion worth of uh, spend. Two topics to follow. Um, Kevin Bice, I'm an emergency medicine doc, and let me say that twice. I'm an emergency medicine doc and geriatrician down in North Carolina. And while I understand Shelley and Tim's macro vision of the university with women and have gotten a lot of exposure to and context to what they're discussing, I still work in the emergency department several times a month. And I go to work and I think about everything they're saying, but not really. <laughs> right? I think about actually what I think about is, oh my goodness, why is Miss Smith here again? And oh my goodness, why has Miss Smith been in the hallway for eight hours? And oh my goodness, you know, does the, can she actually afford this medication? And oh my goodness, I live work in North Carolina. Why did someone send Miss Smith here four hours away from her family 
for an intervention that was never going to occur. And what do I do now? And how does this work with the 30 people in the waiting room? Right? And so while I hear the macro challenges, I think a lot of us in this room live in the micro reality, which is, gosh, despite great nurses and great doctors and great pharmacists and great people that I work with, are we getting it right? And oftentimes the answer to that question is no. So I want to talk just a little bit, just for the last few minutes, about what West Health and Dartmouth together are making possible to evolve a model of care that I think starts to get it right. That starts to empower awesome people like the people in this room to do it differently. And walk away from work feeling like, yeah, I helped Ms. Smith today. Because that's what we all signed up for. I'm going to tell a story. I'm going to tell a story from a patient's perspective. Emergency care in our country is currently rendered. And please hear me, I am a proud emergency physician. This isn't about people not doing the right thing. It's about systems tilted in the wrong direction. It's fictional, but it may resonate. Ms. Smith's working in the garden. She falls. She hurts her foot. She calls her doctor. She gets an answering machine. It says, if you're really worried, call 911. Otherwise, we wish you luck. <laughs> she gets sick. She has diabetes. She has an infection. She calls the answering machine. It says, if you're really worried, call 911. Otherwise, so she calls 911. She goes to the emergency department. We're good people, like myself, and a lot of the folks in this room are working. She's in there for a while. She gets more confused. She has a little bit of cognitive decline at baseline. Now she has delirium because she's sick. She's in a stressful environment. There's no more deliriogenic place in the universe than the hallway of an emergency department. <laughs> she's sick. Ten hours into her stay, when I got to make a decision, I got to admit her. What else am I going to do? I can't send her back to that house. That doesn't make any sense. That'd be the wrong thing to do. I got two options. I can send her back to her house, or I can admit her. So I bring her into my house, the hospital, where she stays for eight days. The national data is that if you're delirious, acutely confused, you stay for three and a half days longer than if you're not. If you're running a hospital, that's a disaster because of the way reimbursement works. But more importantly, if you're a patient or a family member, that's a calamity. Now she's debilitated. So we got to send her somewhere. It's not home. And here we are. She started by falling in the garden. She ends up in a nursing home. And this is intentionally a circle. Might not go back to her house, but it's going to happen again. And you're going to see Miss Smith again. And it's not going to be for the better. That story is every part of every day of my life in the emergency department when I'm there. And I think it probably resonates with a lot of us here. I'll tell a different story. Same person, same accident. Geriatric emergency medicine is not just about doing the ED differently. Of course it's that. But it's about doing acute unscheduled care differently. How do we disrupt this entire cycle of despair or cascade of calamity that we just outlined there? For starters, she can get a hold of someone. Telemedicine doesn't have to be that complicated. I happen to have the perfect telemedicine instrument in my pocket, and you probably do too. Right? It doesn't, we don't need to, I mean, there are better ways to do it, but there are ways, there's technology that makes it very accessible. 
Maybe it can't be sold to her telehealth, so she has to come to the hospital. This says the Gary and Mary West Senior Emergency Care Unit. I, Matt, I invite you to envision the Dartmouth-Hitchcock Emergency Care Unit, right, being up on that sign right there. But in that space, she's not in the hallway. She isn't getting increasingly delirious. We have a real discussion about what matters to her and where she wants to go and what interventions make sense. And the nursing and doctor teams in that space know what options are available to her. It's not either size small, back to your home you go, or size large, into my home you go, the hospital. It's size medium, like could I get you home health? Could we do IV antibiotics at home if she's got an infection from this cut with her diabetes? Um, can I get home health in place? Can I have you see your doctor tomorrow? Like we have to, there are ways to schedule appointments after hours, right? How do we integrate that? How does the emergency department become the front porch and not the front door of the hospital? How does it take care of patients differently? And it makes sense from the hospital's perspective because admitting all the Ms. Smiths doesn't help Ms. Smith and doesn't keep the hospital viable because the patients that need to be in the hospital are the ones that need specific interventions that can only be delivered in the hospital. So maybe back to home she goes with antibiotics. She doesn't get debilitated. She's not in the hospital for eight days. She doesn't have acute delirium, which leads to increased incidence of worsening dementia downstream. We can bypass a lot of that, and she can go see John and his team in a follow-up clinic appointment, or as is appropriate. What we've just described here, Tim was talking a lot about healthcare costs. I'm proud to be a part of the healthcare workforce. I don't think that the healthcare is the problem, and Tim is certainly not saying that either. But what Tim and I and Shelley both all described here is we can do it better, cheaper, aka value-based care. We can provide better care by being more precise and thoughtful and having some freedom within the bumpers to deliver care differently and do it more sustainably. Um, and just comment, UNC, where I work, we connect with Meals on Wheels. So if someone has food scarcity, they get Meals on Wheels, and Meals on Wheels doesn't just give them food. They do a full assessment, because if you don't have lunch, you probably don't have other things as well. So how else do we connect with the other social services? Again, how do we use acute unscheduled care, that time in a patient's life when they say, help, I don't know what else I'm going to do, I'm going to go to the emergency department. No one, does, no one wants to be there on Friday night. No one does that for fun. They only do it because they don't know what else to do. How do we use that not to just react to what happened, but to get out in front and say, okay, this happened, you fell. But you probably didn't fall for the first time. Why did this happen? And how do we help you not fall next week? How do we connect you with your, if you don't have food and your family's despondent and they don't know what else to do, right, and they're dropping off their mom because they're desperate, how do we not just scold them and order medical tests? How do we infuse into that crisis point the social service agencies that are in our community already? So we, for example, bring in Meals on Wheels, do a full social assessment, and then bring in the rest of the interventions. And what happens is that the patient comes back to the ED less. One hospital in Wisconsin that's been doing this for a couple of years, from 32% revisit in 30 days to 20% revisit in 30 days. Makes a difference. This idea is not new. Yula Wong, a close colleague that also works with West Health, wrote the first article on geriatric emergency departments in 2007. She actually was studying overcrowding in emergency departments. She went down to the ED, she was studying overcrowding, and then she had this moment where she said, you know who's hurting the most is frail older adults. They, they can't tolerate this. This, is, this isn't just inconvenient, it's catastrophic. But no one listened, and I'm an emergency medicine doc. We didn't publish this in an emergency medicine journal. We published this in JEDS, the Journal of, Ameri of Geriatrics. At the same time the clinical awareness was building, the 
financial awareness was building. So this RAND report in 2013 by Art Kellerman and others talked about the incredibly important role that emergency medicine plays in cost and care trajectory of patients. Over 60% of hospital admissions in this country happen through the emergency department. Not from the emergency department. I didn't invite them. Okay, so don't blame me. But through the emergency department, because where else do you go? Right? It's hard to get into your doctor's office. Things are full. It's hard to get appointments. What else do you do? And so to the emergency department, you come. Which means that if we can, and this is where West's and Shelley's leadership and brilliance comes in, if we can intervene on that spot, if we can help people when they declare that they need help, we can again help them avoid some of the harms that can happen in the hospital and get them more sustainable resources over time at home to help because that's where they're coming when they need help. So you've got this raising clinical awareness where, gosh, what's happening in the emergency department? And this doesn't seem to be working because there's really a place, a pressure cooker of the whole system. An overcrowded emergency department is an overcrowded hospital. It's not an overcrowded emergency department. And you've got this financial awareness that we can't continue to spend lots of money on folks and then not help them. We've got to do this differently. So we wrote the geriatric ED guidelines in 2014. Right? A geriatric ED, which you're going to be building here at Dartmouth, it's about education. Everybody gets a little more education in geriatrics. It's about care processes. How do you screen for delirium, dementia, domestic violence, abuse, etc. It's about structure. How are you not in a skinny cot in the hallway with bright lights shining on you, etc. And it's about connection with the community. The ED goes from being the front door of the hospital to the front porch of the hospital. We wrote these guidelines in 2014. Fantastic. Raise your hand if you've read them. And that's only because you've been encouraged to over the last year. No offense. I mean, don't want to see if you've them now, but you didn't read them a year ago. So this is great, but insufficient. Right? If you want to, if you want to hide knowledge, put it in the book. Um, so, <laughs> so West Health created really a Taj Mahal solution. The Gary Mary West Senior Emergency Care Unit is fantastic. I realize we're pretty far from San Diego, but if you ever have the chance to go, it's incredible to see. The folks there would be happy to show it to you. I'd be happy to show it to you. It is beautiful. It is amazing. But it is also, because by doing things fantastically, you can distill principles of care and principles of architecture there that can then disseminate across the country. Uh, Gary and Mary West sincerely wish that they could do this in every community in the country. No, no one can do but what we can do is learn from best practices and best architecture and best systems and spread them. And that's exactly what we're doing here. And so it's a wonderful place to see. I go back there for inspiration when I'm trying to figure out how to help hospitals emulate the success. Again, though, that's great. But how do you really get spread? Because what we've done so far is get people that are interested, the few that will read the guidelines, the champions, and make it happen. But how do you actually hit all 4,500 emergency departments in this country? You've got to move from the enthusiasts, here we are, you know, to the conservatives. And there's a pathway for that. And that's what we're talking about today is continuing to spread. So we started to do classes on campus. One key point here is that healthcare is local. People want to be treated local, people live where they live, and people work in interdisciplinary teams at their hospital. So bringing all the doctors to Las Vegas to learn stuff and all the nurses to Orlando doesn't really work. And instead, what we do is work with teams on site. And we get to be doing that with your team here in November, working with interdisciplinary team to do this work. And 
ASEP, the American College of Emergency Physicians, created an accreditation program. Because again, what we're looking for is spread. We know there's a clinical need. We know there's a financial need. We know that there's ways to do it better. But how does it catch? How does it spread? How does it change care across the country? How do I know that my mom, when she needs this care, will get it, and yours will too? That's what we're after. So ASAP created an accreditation program, which I think has been pivotal. We started accrediting hospitals just 14 months ago. And as I'll come to in a second, we now have 86 accredited hospitals in the, or accredited emergency departments in the country. So we've made some headway. The demand as a part of this accreditation program that you track your outcomes. Do you come up with dashboards that make sense? Because if you're going to make change, you've got to watch how it plays out. There's three levels of emergency medicine accreditation. The reason for this is that level three, which is the lowest, because we think in terms of trauma centers, level one being the highest, is obtainable by every emergency department in the country. I will not listen to an argument from someone that says we can't do a level three. I just don't believe that. Because what you need for a level three is a nurse champion, a physician champion, some basic supplies, and an initiative, a quality improvement initiative to make your ED better for older adults. What you need is eagerness and enthusiasm. But what happens when they start to do that is they then move up. They say, oh, we can do this. We, can, we are empowered. We can provide care better. And we watch them evolve. So we're already having hospitals that started as level threes moving up the chain to level twos, which are much more rigorous in what they provide. All of a sudden, out of 27 best geriatric ED practices, a level two is providing 10 of those. And they've got a QI process in place. They're tracking their outcomes. They're doing a lot of great work. And you go all the way to a level one soon to be Dartmouth-Hitchcock, and you've got 20 out of 27 best practices, multiple outcomes that you're tracking. You've got a real system in place that's cooking along, that's visibly transforming care for older adults. And very importantly, you have a patient advisor, or several. Some folks have said to me, oh, we've got a patient advisor. Somebody tells the patients what to do. <laughs> no, I said a patient advisor is somebody who tells me what to do. Right? Because that's the perspective we need. That's the perspective we need. Take your new intern to make them spend a day as a patient in the ER. Please. It is dang powerful. Last ingredient. It needs to play in the system we swim in. Looking at Dr. Conroy, looking at others. Everything's great. We want to do everything, but how do we actually make it happen? We've got to think about the value to the healthcare system and to the hospitals that we're asking to do this work. Right? And I think the value draws into three buckets. One is every hospital is there is full of people that want to do good for the community, that believe in the community. That's why they put their lives and their careers into this. Everyone in this room, that's absolutely true. Stating to the community that we care about older adults is critical. Two, really important with the Dartmouth Hitchcock, census management. You gotta, the people that need hospital interventions that can only happen in the hospital, like a big surgery, that are consistent with their care wishes are the people that need to be here. Other folks that don't need to be here, we need to find other places to go that are better for them and more sustainable for the economy. Census management, increased case mix index, etc. And three, value-based care is coming in our country. It may be a bit of an intoxicated stumble towards value-based care right now, nationally, <laughs> but it is coming. It's happening. Tim was just alluding to it, and you've got to have programs in place that allow that transition to happen. So my story, in brief, is how one clinician, right? One guy or gal who's passionate about something, in my case, how do we do emergency medicine better for older adults, can really make a difference with the team. It's not about me. 
That's not the right way to say it. What I mean is that I don't have to understand everything about policy and finance. I don't have to be the business whiz that Tim is or the public affairs and uh, policy whiz that Shelley is in order to understand what I see in front of me every day. And then align some of the work that I get to do with great partners here at Dartmouth and across the country to help make a difference for our country. Right? So all of us together can look at what we see in healthcare delivery every day. Look at what's not working. Align ourselves with market forces and policy opportunities and can drive some of these activities forward. And an awesome team, of which I am in the back row on the bus, driving this work forward at West Health and many other organizations across the country. We're starting to make a difference. People come back to the ED less, people get admitted to the hospital less, we're spending less money, and most importantly, people are less miserable when they're in the ED. Thank God. We're making tremendous difference by leveraging the opportunities that are already there and being creative together. This last slide is going to work on time. West Health and Dartmouth together get to do something awesome. I just described a bunch of EDs in the last year, but there's 4,500 hospitals in this country. All of them need to be doing this work to some extent or another. West Health and Dartmouth over the next three years are going to not just create a level one geriatric ED here, which is going to be led by your team, Jackie and Susie and others doing amazing work here, but are going to work with Kevin Curtis and others to help get the innovation and work that's done here out to the smaller communities, out to the rural hospitals, out to the critical access hospitals. And in so doing, take that long list of level one requirements, which requires a lot of resources, and why not use teleconnectivity to make those resources available in places where you can't have a case manager in the ED all the time, or you can't have a pharmacist all the time, or there's no geriatrician within 100 miles. That's the kind of thing that teleconnectivity makes possible. That's what we at West Health haven't been able to do yet. And that's what we, West Health and Dartmouth together, are going to be doing over the next three years. It lets patients be treated where they live. It lets them stay in their community. And it lets a major center like Dartmouth-Hitchcock use its resources, its incredible resources and expertise, for those patients that will most need and most benefit from those resources. And finally, Dartmouth is then going to teach the rest of the country how to do that as well. Because we are not in the only place in the country where you've got a major medical center surrounded by a lot of communities with less resources. So with Shelly and Tim's leadership, just want to say thank you. We're so excited to be here. I really think that in three years, we're not just going to be able to be a small part in delivering care differently at Dartmouth in New England. We're going to be a part in communicating that to the rest of the nation and continue to drive toward the healthcare system that better serves our seniors and is more sustainable for our nation. Thanks. I'm going to invite people to come and speak with our guests because of the hour. I know some of you have to get off to clinical work and out to other things. Um, but I can think of no more wonderful presentation that we've had this morning. We are as enthusiastic as you are about our partnership, and we are just so delighted that you've been able to publicly discuss this and that we get to all share in this together. So I'm going to invite people who would like to speak with our group because they have another commitment in about 15 minutes. I think you're heading out to another area. Um, those who have to leave, leave, but others please stay and come up and mingle with uh, our speakers. Thank you very much.